Have you ever taken a personality test? Anybody taken an inventory, a Myers-Briggs type indicator? Can you tell I've studied this stuff before? Have you ever taken like, and you go, okay, it says I'm introverted and really screwed up? No. Um, we take these personality tests and they tell us things about ourselves. They give us insight. An extrovert, introvert's a real one. If you're an extrovert, you get energy by being around people. You're the life of the party. You know no strangers. You see what I'm saying? If you're an introvert, if life could be a good book and a cup of coffee and a blanket, you would be happy. <laughs> I'm exaggerating, of course, but you get the idea, right? And we have these temperaments. We have these differences. But I just gave you a list of characteristics built around a personality type, right? Categories. If you're like this, then you must be like this. It's the same thing we do with stereotypes. You might be a redneck if is a famous comedy routine, right? And there's all these things that are funny because they're true, but they're stereotypes. What do people say about Mississippi? Y'all wear shoes in that state. They're stereotypes, right? And the reason that happens is our brain naturally categorizes information. It's why you can see like, it's why things like Wheel of Fortune where there's like puzzles with blanks and you know what the word is, your brain fills in the blanks. Our brains are wired to fill in information. And so what the categories give us is they give us a whole bunch of information shorthand. Oh, that person's an extrovert. They're like this. And our brain naturally goes, okay, that's true. Same thing happens. It used to be one of the most helpful things about having denominations. You ever thought about this? Oh, that's a Methodist church. They do this. Oh, that's a Catholic church. They do this. The denominations had, this is our statement of belief. They still do. These are our statements of belief. These are our practices. If you walk into a Presbyterian church here or one in Texas, it kind of looks the same. And so your brain goes, oh, that's a United Methodist church. I know what worship will look like. Unless you go up there and then come down here. You're like, I don't know what's going on. But in general, you don't, you, you see a sign and you go, you see Chick-fil-A your brain knows what to expect, right? You see a Chick-fil-A sign on Sunday, your heart bursts because it's Sunday. <laughs> your brain categorizes information, and it's, a way, and it's a way that we do that that helps us understand or to know what we're expecting from a set of circumstances. That works to a degree that it works, but it also leads us to tend to judge right away as well. Oh, they're this. That means this about them. And we lump whole groups of people into a set of categories because of who they are, because of something that has happened to them, and we make assumptions that may be true generally of a broad category of people, but is very likely not true of particular individuals. I score really high on introversion. I have no stage fright. Like, we, just because you're this doesn't mean you're that. But we tend to judge that way. We tend to make assumptions about those type of things. When I was growing up in high school in Mississippi, and this may be still true. If this is still true, cool. I don't know, not cool, but it makes sense. When I was growing up in high school, if one of my friends, another high school student, smoked, drank, or had a tattoo, there was no way they were following Jesus. That was the assumption. That's how you could tell the Christians from the non-Christian students. Oh, 
they partied on Friday night, they must not follow God. Or, oh, they were out with their friends Saturday night. You see them, and then they're there on Sunday morning. <laughs> but like, it was a marker in our category of mind. If they do this, there is no way they can be a Christian. Now I ask you, is that a fair category? Right? We make assumptions about somebody. We make judgments about somebody. Because they had an adult beverage, they can't know Jesus. Because they have a tattoo that's weird, they can't know Jesus. That's a judgmental category. And Jesus, in His Sermon on the Mount, had some very important words to say about judging others. <laughs> Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. We've been working our way steadily through the Sermon on the Mount. We have this week and next week, and we will finish the Sermon on the Mount just in time for Ash Wednesday and Lent. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is still in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Whew. We're going to keep going in a minute. Do not judge. Probably one of the most frequently quoted Scripture verses, especially if you confront somebody about something. The Bible says don't judge. You can't judge me for that. Non-Christians like to throw that one in our face if you call them out for something. Do not judge me. You, your Bible says you can't judge me. I, I'm not a Christian. You can't judge me. Jesus says, do not judge lest you be judged. It's, it's pulled. Do not judge is not the whole verse. That's the part we throw up. That's the part that's naturally quoted over and over again. Do not judge lest you be judged is the rest of it. Do not judge, but the judgment you hold against others will be the standard held to you. Now, that's the important piece of the puzzle, right? If I judge you for your hairstyle, <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Like, the standard you hold to somebody is the standard that will be held to you. You'll get in return the same level of criticism and judgment that you provide others. What is Jesus denying? What is Jesus forbidding here? Is he saying we shouldn't decide, hey, something they just did is wrong? Is he saying, hey, we should not... Everybody should just live however they want to. We can't call anybody on the carpet. There's no accountability. Is that what he's forbidding? Because let's just be honest. The rest of that statement is you'll be judged to the same standard you hold them. So if you critique somebody because of a sin, and you don't want to be critiqued for your sin, so I'm not going to judge you. Is that what he's forbidding? I don't think so. Because he continues to talk. He continues to say things like this. For how can you take the speck out of somebody else's eye while there's a log in yours? There's still the implication in that statement that you should be helping others remove the speck from their eye. But we're not supposed to judge. But we're supposed to help remove specks. But wait, I've got to remove this log from mine before I can help them remove the speck? What is being forbidden is rigid judgmentalism without introspection. 
What's being forbidden is the stereotype. Oh, they're not, there's no way they can be a Christian. This happened, or they did this. They're not a Christian. They don't, meet, they don't meet my standards of what a Christian looks like. That's really what you're saying when you say that, by the way. They can't be a Christian because they're not like me. I mean, that's the rest of what we're saying in our head. Maybe not verbally, but subconsciously or in, indirectly saying they're not good enough for me to be around me. So he's forbidding judgmentalism, not judgment. Now, the reason I say that is because there's a big difference between judging something and discerning whether something's right or wrong. Judgment is they can't possibly be a Christian because I know the status of their soul because I'm super awesome Christian, right? Discernment is I think that behavior, that activity, that choice that they made is wrong or evil. I'm discerning whether that's right or wrong. Judging them for making a right or wrong choice is judgmental. See the difference? Judgmentalism says, I'm holy, you're not, <laughs> right? Discernment is, I have to look at God's word and go, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is right, because God's word tells me to, and I'm supposed to keep God's commands and follow them. And if we're a group of Christians on the same spiritual journey, what is the natural connection there? That we're supposed to be on that journey together, helping each other discern for ourselves what's right and what's wrong. How can we not have conversations with people we trust, not with the whole world on social media, hey, you did that wrong, but how can we not have accountable conversations? How can we not call somebody to account if they were hurtful with their word choice, for example? Hey, what you just said right there, that really hurt. Do not judge. That's not what that means. If we're going to be on a faith journey together, if we're going to be a group of people on a spiritual journey together trying to become more and more like Christ, to pursue holiness, to pursue a per perfect love in our hearts, then we have to be open to finding out what's wrong with us. And we have to help each other remove our specks. What Jesus is forbidding is doing it without checking yourself first. What Jesus is forbidding is be careful before you try to remove some small thing in somebody else's life when there's this glaring one in yours. It's a metaphor. You're obviously doing something the Bible calls sin and you dare critique so-and-so because they told a white lie. That's kind of what the metaphor is playing out to be, right? Because we have a hard time, right? If somebody is ingenuinely following stuff, listening to them, hey, you should, get, you should spend more money on this. Oh, no, I know, I know, I know. Sorry, this may sound a little political, but I won't. If you drive, drive electric cars while I fly around in my gas jet, we don't take that feedback well, right? It doesn't line up. So when we go to our Christian brother and sister and we go, hey, I noticed the other day you really are struggling with this. When we've got this major sin hanging out for everybody to see, that's what he's forbidding. In fact, to be, hold each other accountable requires introspection. We cannot discern sin if we're not willing to look at ourselves first. That's what the passage is calling us to. It's not that you can never help correct. Because if the standard is, I have to have all the logs and all the specs out of my eye before I help you, there is no accountability. 
What does Jesus do with the woman that's caught in adultery? Person who has the person without sin casts the first stone. But wait, we're supposed to discern and help. Yeah. So it's not. There's no accountability unless you're perfect. It's there's no holding one to one another to account unless you have first examined your own heart. That's why in verse five he calls him a hypocrite. He says, "You hypocrite, you've done no self check." You can't see the glaring sin in your own life. How are you supposed to see sin in the lives of somebody else? In fact, what you're probably doing is paying attention to their sin to ignore your own. Because we feel better about ourselves when we see it in somebody else. Oh, at least I'm not like them. And we can't call people out for stuff that we're willingly and willfully ignoring in our own life. You first have to identify what is going on inside of you. And you don't wait until you're perfect. If we waited until we were perfect to come to church, who'd be at church? Right? Church is for people who are still struggling with this very issue. Introspection is a requirement for determining right and wrong. I have to start with my own walk, my own spiritual life, my own planks, if you will, my own logs in my own eyes so that I can help you once I've addressed that. If you search your own heart and find the sin that is there, then you can rightly see to help others, to help your neighbor. Here's the thing about that. This is what's so amazing about the way Jesus puts this. If my position of helping you walk on your spiritual journey is I got to check my own heart first and make sure there's no, I'm good, me and God are square and I'm working on this and I'm trying to get past it, but I still struggle with X, Y, and Z. And then I approach you about whatever it is you've asked me for help with or accountability with. Then I'm approaching that relationship with the humility of realizing I'm not perfect either. Think about that. If I come to you to hold you accountable, but in my own heart and in my own mind, I am fully aware that I am not perfect either, then I'm able to approach that accountability with humility and respect versus, look how spiritual and perfect I am. Let me help you with yours. Because as soon as we spend any time reflecting on our day, <laughs> We spend any time reflecting the last couple of hours. We can see planks. And what it reminds us is we're not perfect either. We're all in this together. And so then I can be loving and discerning and, ca and careful with you because I want to be held to the same standard. Do not judge lest you be judged, but when you, ju you will be held to the standard you give. If I come to you with accountability, but also with a measure of grace and love and understanding, that's what I get back when I screw up. Tomorrow's Valentine's Day. Think about that for the implications of marriage, right? You want to correct some pet peeve in your spouse. <laughs> what had you better do first? Make sure there are no pet peeves in you, <laughs> Right? But if you come to her and say, ah, honey, I need this changed or I need this corrected, but I'm going to work on these five things. That's a different conversation. 
try to drop it from on high on your spouse and see how that goes for you. <laughs> right? So this humility, this willingness to work on my own self, I'm still struggling with this, but can you help me with this? Is a totally different attitude than holy judgment and judgmentalism. It's a totally different perspective. So he says, check to make sure you have no plank in your own eye, essentially, before you try to even get the speck out of theirs. By the way, the size difference is important too, right? You've got a glaring, massive, stubborn sin, and you're worried about a little thing in them. So it starts with a search of your own heart first. Then you will be able to help. Then you'll be able to encourage. Then you will be able to hold accountable. Which, when you understand it that way, verse 6 starts to make a little more sense. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them underfoot and turn and maul you. I like this translation. <laughs> they will turn and maul you. Now, if you read that verse, you grip that verse out of context, it's like, don't give people who aren't Christians Christian stuff. Kind of. Right? Maybe you've heard it taught that way before. Don't give the world God's stuff. Keep it for ourselves. I don't know how you've heard that taught before. But when you drop that behind verse 5, when he says, remove the speck so that you can help them. And you've done that. And you're coming, at, you're coming to somebody who has a sin in their life that needs to go or a problem that they need help with or support with. And they throw back verse 1. Don't judge. I don't want to hear it. What about your thing? You got this. When that's what it sounds like, and you keep going back for accountability conversation after accountability conversation until they unload on you. Verse 6 just happened. The context is, this is tied to the first five verses, right? Don't, if, if you're going to go to somebody and help them with accountability from an accountability standpoint, and they don't listen, and they don't listen, and they don't listen, don't become a marketing call that hits you three times a day until you, tell, until you, until you put them on delete or block, Right? because they'll turn on you. That's what the passage is saying. If, you're, if you've done the work, you've done the deep work and the planks are under control with God and the Holy Spirit and you feel, and you're just helping somebody and they turn on you, that's what this passage is talking about. Don't continue to offer loving correction. Don't continue to offer accountability if they're just going to maul you for it. You ever been there? <laughs> we could go back to the spouse conversation, right? How Valentine's tomorrow, it's like, I've told her over and over and over again. I've told him over and over and over again. And all he does is get mad. Whoops. It's a call toward temperance of understanding because if you're continuing to hound somebody about sin in their life, they're going to turn on you. Do not throw pearls before swine. Don't call your spouse a swine on Valentine's Day. That won't work. I'm not going to correct you on this anymore, swine. That won't go well tomorrow. But you get my point, right? I always thought verse 6 was some weird thing about how long, do you, you know, about judgment and stuff and like deciding if they're a Christian or not, a, a pig or not, essentially. But it's don't keep holding somebody accountable that doesn't want to be taught. Paul does that. There's a place in 1 Corinthians where he says, it, once you've corrected and tried to correct and tried to correct, cut them off from the fellowship, which sounds crazy harsh. 
right? They've not received instruction, cut them off from the church. He's putting into practice, verse 6. If they're not going to listen, if they're not going to change, if they're not going to grow, if they're not going to participate in the love of Christ, cut them off from you. Don't continue to throw your pearls in front of somebody who doesn't want to be a part of the game. I'm mixing metaphors all over the place. But you follow what I'm saying, right? That's what he means. Don't continue to throw this stuff out if it's not going to be received and responded to. Look at verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds. And everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you, if a child asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if there is a child that asks for a fish, you will give a snake? If then, you who are evil, <laughs> know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Maybe Matthew chapter 7 gets misquoted a lot. But if you read that, does that not sound like God's a genie? Ask and He'll give it to you. Seek and you'll find it. Knock and the door will be opened. Cool. I want a million dollars. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of how that sounds, right? I asked for God for a million dollars. I know it's coming. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, if you rip that out of context, that's what it sounds like. Ask and he'll be, it'll be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Sweet, sign me up to be a Christian. You think that's the intent of the passage? I don't. Unfortunately. <laughs> right? Everybody's this afternoon like, Charlie said I could ask for a million dollars. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that's the intent of the passage. That's because it's ripped out of context and it just says, ask and I'll give it to you. If you drop this back into what we've been just been talking about, don't judge or you'll be judged. The standard to which you, are at, you hold others will be held to you. Don't make sure that you've examined your heart and removed the plank before you begin to approach your brother or sister about the, the speck in their eye. Don't continue to hound them until they turn on you and maul you. Leave them to God. Ask God and it will be given to you. If you drop it into that context, my question is, is he talking about material things or is he talking about grace and forgiveness? Maybe in context, in the context of I've screwed up, they've screwed up, we've all screwed up. <laughs> Maybe if I ask God for forgiveness, he will give it. Maybe if I seek the heart of God, I will find it. Maybe if I knock on the door of the Holy Spirit, metaphorically speaking here, I want a relationship. God's not going to be like, come back next week. You know what I mean? Like, maybe it is, I've been dealing with planks. Will you help me with them? Of course God wants to do it. Maybe what we're supposed to be asking for is forgiveness. Not just with God, but with each other. But in particular, if we're doing this introspection, if we're doing this deep dive into our own soul, which is the hard work of the faith, right? To be open and honest and self-aware that I am not perfect, but I'm trying to change. That if I ask God for help with that, He'll do it. Then it makes a whole lot more sense 
that he says, for those, if, if those of you who are evil know how to give your kids good gifts, it's an argument from less to greater, right? If we can do it, God can. If I can forgive somebody who wrongs me, if I can demonstrate forgiveness to the person who has the speck, how much more can your Father in heaven pour out grace upon you? I mean, if we can do it and we're screwed up, if we're capable of genuine forgiveness, how much more is your Father in heaven able to forgive you? And if we ask, He'll give it. If we seek it, we'll find it. And if we knock to God and reach out to God, He will be happy and more capable than we are to forgive us. Because let's be honest when we talk about forgiveness. How easy is it to forgive somebody who's wronged you? It's not. We hang on to it. We keep it around like a pet. We carry our grudges. If we're able to forgive somebody, then God is even more gracious and honestly wants to forgive us. Would love to pour out His grace upon us. Don't judge or you'll be judged. Ask yourself if there's any sin inside of you, any planks hanging out, so that I can be gracious to others in helping them on their spiritual journey. Seek forgiveness from God, He'll grant it. If you as a sinner know how to be gracious with others, how much more gracious will your Father in heaven be gracious that's a message of hope, by the way. That's a message that says, yep, still got some planks, got some specs, got some two-by-fours, got some plywood that's four-by-ten. You know what I mean? We got stuff going on over here. God goes, I know. I know, but at least you're telling me. Let's get to work. Maybe we can build something. Sounds like a Hope Home Depot commercial or something. So, yes, we're carrying this stuff around. But if we ask God to forgive us, then He's gracious to do so, hoping to do so, wanting and longing to do so. But we're also inviting Him in to transform us. It's not, hey, us, there's a difference between I'm sorry and I was wrong. And the sooner you figure this out, your Valentine's will go better tomorrow. <laughs> okay? I'm sorry I didn't put the toilet seat down again or that you found it still up. You know, like, I'm sorry is not an apology. I was wrong is owning what you did wrong. And it's semantic a little bit, but there's a different ad difference in attitude. Because I'm sorry can be completed by, I'm sorry you caught me, right? I'm sorry you found out about it. I'm, people say this like this, I'm sorry if what I said offended you. They're not sorry they said it. They're sorry you're offended. They're not apologizing for offending you. They're saying, sorry you got offended, but I'm going to keep saying it anyway. I was wrong for saying that. There's no wiggle room. I own that. Try that on your spouse the next time you get into a spat. You know what? I was wrong. That's removing a plank. That's seeking forgiveness. I was wrong. Can you forgive me for that? Not, I'm sorry. <laughs> you can even, the way you say I'm sorry can sound like, I don't know, 
judgmentalism toward them. Sorry, you're so offended. You know, it's just not, it's not, it doesn't have the same teeth, and maybe that's our own fault for ruining the words. Verse 12. In everything, do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. So he, he rounds this passage up with the golden rule. Do unto others as you have do to you. And he, he lands it with, on this is the law and the prophets. That verse itself is a summary of everything he has said in this sermon on the mount since chapter, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Turn there with me for a second. And if you don't have it or it's on the screen, it's okay, just listen. This is Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Matthew 7, 12. In everything, do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. Here's how. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It also perfectly summarizes from, chapter, from verse 1 of chapter 7 down to where we are, right? Don't judge, lest you shall be judged. To the standard you judge others, that measure will be handled, handed to you. Do to others what you would have them do to you. Don't go running out of here looking for specs. Is what I'm saying. Don't be judgmental if that's not what you want others to do to you. Don't be judgy, because that's the standard you will be held to. In everything, be gracious toward others as you would have as, as gracious to others as you would have them be gracious to you. It's the humility thing again, right? If somebody has walked the same path you've walked, you can understand why they would fail. It's one of the reasons that AA is so incredibly successful in helping people stay out of alcohol and drugs. Because they're sitting in a room with other people that have done the same thing. They know the power of the temptation. They know the struggle. They know the weakness. They know the triggers. And so when they're sitting across the room from somebody who has the same triggers, they're like, I get it. I understand. I know. It's tough. You failed again. It's okay. It's okay. Don't do it again. <laughs> I mean, that's always the paradigm, right? It's like, man, I... I sinned, so I might as well just give up. God's calling us to more than that. But He's calling us to be gracious, as gracious to others as we want to be treated. If we know we're struggling with something, we don't want to be judged either. But I guarantee you, if I harm you, if I wrong you with my words, I want to know. If I do something that's not gracious towards you, I want to know it. Because how else am I supposed to ever correct it? You thought about that? Without us being on this journey together, what chance do we have to ever become more like Christ? Christian faith was never meant to be lived all by itself. Sorry, introverts. You can't be a Christian just by sitting on your couch drinking coffee. You can be very spiritual. Can't, that's not the whole experience, as spiritual as experience that is for me. It's not the whole experience. 
if we cut ourselves off from everybody else, if we cut ourselves off from the outside world, then we miss part of what God has for us. But we're supposed to carry the same love and grace that we want in return. Don't judge without first checking your own heart, changing what's in here. Then you'll be able to be gracious and loving to others. God's love starts here and extends out. Let's pray. God, help us and encourage us to do the deep spiritual work. To search our hearts and find the sin that's there. So that we could ask you for forgiveness and help others join us on that same journey towards you. It's in Christ's precious name. Amen. We've been doing a journal through Sermon on the Mount this entire time. And if you've been following along, I've been sending those out on email. If you, if you missed them, the previous questions are there. And so you can, go, you can backtrack and journal it. There's still some journals in the lobby if you've never picked one up. It's a spiritual exercise or experience. And so I want to give you a question for today, which seems a little obvious, right? Where's the plank in your eye? Where's the sin in your heart that needs to be removed? Where's the, where's the person that you may have been judgmental to that you need to go make right? Ask God this week to help you see clearly so that you can worship Him.